millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the second part of a two-parter with Baroness Helena Kennedy. There was just too much to cram into one part, so please enjoy more of her wonderful wit and repartee. I was on the tube not very long ago, and uh, I, I could feel somebody sitting to my left was, was looking at me, and, and so I turned around and she said, are you who I think you are? And I said, and I hesitated for a minute, and I said, well, if you're thinking of killing your husband, I could be your woman. <laughs> Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Somebody said to me, um, oh, I've got imposter syndrome. And I went, welcome to the club. I don't know anybody. And you know that we meet everybody from the biggest film stars in the world to lords and, and politicians all over the world. They're all the same, essentially. If you show me somebody who doesn't have that, I will show you a psychopath, to be honest with you, because it's a normal human nature to have a little bit of that. What we learn to do, and I think this is interesting for anybody listening, is how do you learn to overcome that so you don't show it too much in, in, in the world, so you can appear confident? When I first started at the bar, I did feel, I mean, I, when, I, when I started going to law classes um, uh, as a, as a, in my late teen, I mean, I was 18, um, I, uh, everybody in my class um, was posh. And, uh, and I thought they sounded just like the voices that I used to hear on the radio <laughs> growing up. And, uh, and there's an interesting thing, which is that I made the assumption and they were all men, and they were all boys. They were all young men who'd all gone to those very fancy schools, you know. And uh, and uh, um, and I assumed because of their voices that they were very clever. I just I somehow there there was a certain certain kind of way of presenting, and uh, their education had given them that that um, that confidence and that polish, which meant that they sounded intelligent even when after a little while. You know, you'd listen and you'd start thinking that was a really stupid thing to say. And so you started realizing that actually, um, in many ways, it was about a veneer and about being able to, if you speak in a confident enough way, um, whatever's going on inside, <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can present it differently. And by watching this, I realized that actually um, one of the things is about controlling your voice and, and being able to speak with authority and uh, and and not and being confident enough to address the, a, a courtroom or an audience or whoever and and one of the things I also found and, it's, and this is an interesting thing is that when um, I uh, got um, well you know I, I'm now you know I'm a king's counsel now actually yeah, um, my QC overnight turned into king's counsel and um, 
uh, once I became uh, um, sort of prominent in my own profession and, and beyond, um, I realized that you, you're able to do things by looking somebody in the eye and not feeling somehow that they're, they're, um, their wealth, for example. Um, I've had to raise money. I, when I was heading up an Oxford college, I, I wanted to create an institute of human rights at Oxford um, because I felt, you know, if the major institutions like Oxford and Cambridge had human rights institutes, then they were bedded into our, our systems and, and it would protect human rights in a way that it was an accepted thing as, as part of the of, of law. And so um, I started trying to raise the money and it was going to, uh, uh, in the end, I had to raise 25 million pounds to build this building and then to create an endowment to pay the salaries of the director and, and so on. And, um, and so in, in talking to people about money, it's very important that you can look them in the eye and that you are not intimidated by somebody being very rich. And Glasgow, I think, and the whole business of, of that Glasgow way of being of humor, seeing humor in things, was that I was able to ask people for serious sums of money um, because I wasn't overwhelmed by the fact of money. And I think that learning that in life is a very important thing. The fact that people become well-known or become rich or whatever, it, it, you know, it shouldn't let you imagine that they're any different from anybody else. And if you can talk to them about the important things in life and the things that really matter, they know about that too. And so it, it is one of those important things. And to not be overwhelmed by the fact that someone's well known, they underneath their, their you know, they're feeling all the same sort of stuff as you. That's a really interesting thing is um, that I actually think that when you get well known, what happens is other people change and you don't but as a result of other people changing it you start to go oh is it so that ability to connect with humor to 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 do that bonding with humor i i think becomes vital in order to get to uh, whether you're actually playing up or playing down in in the social strata it, it becomes the vital connection whereby people go, OK, you can play in that arena because in order to laugh together, you are admitting that we are the same and that you've bonded, aren't you? That's very insightful, Paul. Um, it's that that business of laughing together um, creates a sort of it's, it's a conspiracy in a way. You're, you're recognizing something in each other. Absolutely. It's that's so interesting. Yeah. Oh, I love the idea of it being a conspiracy. I, I'm not going. I'm not going down for it, though, am I? Oh no, no. And I promise you, I, I was on the tube not very long ago, and uh, I, I could feel somebody sitting to my left was was looking at me, and and so I turned around and she said, "Are you who I think you are?" And I said, and I hesitated for a minute, and I said, "Well, if you're thinking of killing your husband, I could be your woman." <laughs> Can I tell you? It was so funny because all the folk, it was in the tube and the, and the folk around us were all suddenly interested in me as well. I could see them going, can I have your card? <laughs> uh, well, in your brilliant books, I mean, I, I, I recently read uh, Miss Justice uh, uh, and it, it's, uh, you talk about the way women present themselves has always mattered in court. Uh, do you think that played into how women because in my era of the comedy store women found it harder to uh, play, get a foothold in the comedy store and 
it was the same in law and it was the same in a lot of pro professions. Um, I worked and still know well, and she's been on the show, Jo Brand. She was one of the only people who could get that foothold um, early. Now things have opened up a lot, but why was it so hard at the time for, for women and, and, and still is to an extent? I mean, I have a, a whole set of, of women friends who, who, who are comedians. I mean, Joe is a friend of mine too, um, Sandy Toxvig and so on. And, and if you get together, they'll say that often they had, um, uh, um, Sandy as a gay woman says that she, she used humour in a way to um, help bridge um, any sense that people might have that she was somehow different. And so, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, and in the same way, I, I mean, Joe, Joe, um, I mean, Joe's stories about the starting days when people shout abuse at her and so on, um, you know, she really was able to turn it on its head. And um, I, so I know quite a number of women who are funny like that and how he, they've made humour a thing of inclusion. And I think that that's that's that thing that we're talking about—the bonding thing that humor can can create, and and crossing divides. Um, and it's interesting that so now, as people, this is that first step. Now you're finding more people from ethnic minorities being stand-up comedians and so on. There's a moment where that you're to put yourself into that space would be too terrifying, but actually by taking the leap into it you then break down so many barriers. And so, you know, you, you it really is an interesting thing. Um, and the, the fact of uh, so many Jewish comedians um, was about, um, you know, the, the business of, I mean, humor is so uh, great amongst uh, uh, the Jewish community. Um, and many uh, of my uh, Jewish pals will say, well, part of it is that, you know, by self-mocking, self-deprecation can, it make 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 it also be a bridging thing, and uh, and so it, it's it's an interesting thing for women, and of course on the business of appearance and so forth. I mean, women um, are always struggling with this because there's always much more judgment made of women because of how they look, how they dress, how they appear. And I mean, I, I listen. I'm the first person who would tell you, you know, I used to be representing women, and I remember I was representing a woman, uh, um, and she was up. She had. Uh, it was a, a homicide of a very abusive husband, a terrible husband. And uh, in fact, she and the daughter were, were, were in the dock in relation to his uh, death. And I and she, while she was in Holloway prison, she was knitting for everybody. And uh, and uh, she was a great knitter, June. And she said to me, um, I've got a very nice sweater that I've knitted for going to the, the court. And she showed me the sweater and it was full of sparkles. It was wool that had. Had, had silver threads in it and gold threads in it and I said to her I, I don't want you to wear that it's a lovely sweater I love it but do not wear it in the courtroom because it just I wanted her there you know looking somber I did not want her there as if she was going to a cocktail party anyway so but of course all the women in the prison had wanted these sparkly sweaters and so that was that had become her niche thing in in jail but uh you know and, and prisons are another place where I have to tell you that humor is incredible it's a survival mechanism at that point isn't it totally and uh, and uh, and and often women who are in custody can can make you weep with laughter about telling you the stories of stuff in prison uh and um yeah
it's it's interesting. Although it's all they're also very places that are full of pain and 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 misery. But it is about survival, as you say. So, what makes you laugh? I was just mentioning that I have a whole set of women friends who are uh, who are comics, you know, as well as being hugely serious when you're with them too. But you know, um, Sandy Toxic is one of the funniest women alive. You should you should do her, Paul. I know Sandy. We used to do the comedy store players together. We run into each other occasionally. I would love to do her. She is uh, one of my favourite people and so quick. So quick and so clever. And she she's she's a lawyer who got away. I've always thought I must make a set proof about the ones that got away. So many people who studied law and then thought. I'm not. I'm not going to have a life of this. And uh, and she was one of them. She did law at Cambridge. And uh, and Sandy is one of the cleverest people I know. I mean, she's so clever. Um, but and and her wit is so fast. Um, and uh, and I, I just to have an evening with Sandy always leaves me feeling I've been to a spa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the humor spa. Yes, I've heard about that. <laughs> well, actually, no, no, it's a sideline for the Humorology Project is uh, that we, you can go to the Humor Spa and, and <laughs> come away feeling cleansed. Yeah, but, you know, you can really, it, there's, there's something about having a night where you really laugh and uh, how, how how good it makes you feel. It really does. It's, isn't isn't the oxytocin or something? Isn't there yes. something is stimulated by, by laughter and that it actually makes you feel good? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the humor spa where you'll get a comedy cleansing. Well, you're the man to do it. If anybody can do it, you can. Uh, well, actually, it's not a terrible idea. Uh, we're going into partnership, Helena. OK, it's the, we'll start the first one in Glasgow. Oh, yes. Yes. We've got plenty, we've got plenty of opportunity there. Definitely. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Um. Helena, we've reached the point of the show which we like to call quickfire questions. Oh, dear. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, that's a lovely reaction. Oh, dear. <laughs> it sounded like my granny. Oh, dear. My children, you see, mock me because my mother used to say, oh, dear. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> and I always say, oh, dear. <laughs> no, it's lovely. It's lovely. Um. You just talked about Sandy Toxford, Joe Brand being friends, um, but who's the funniest business person or, or person in the House of Lords or barrister or judge that you've met? Well, I was mentioning Gilbert Gray, um, who, was, who was one of the funniest barristers I've, I've ever known. <clears throat> I have a great friend, Chris Salon, who's a, a, a King's Counsel, again, one of the funniest people. And his stories about being in the courtroom are hilarious. Um, there, there, a lot of criminal barristers are actually the, the wittiest and funniest that you can come across um, in the House of Lords. Um, <clears throat> George Folks, who's on the back benches, is a, a Labour peer. Um, uh, there, there are whole sets of people <clears throat> who are, are very um, uh, funny and, and witty. Um, in uh, judges, oh, um, Alan Moses is a very funny man and um, was a great Court of Appeal judge. 
um, and who then went on to run the Press Complaints Commission. Would you know that I was with Karen Brady yesterday, you know, who, who does the um, uh, the telly thing. The Apprentice. She's in the House of Lords now. But we were at a gathering yesterday. She can be hilariously funny. She's very good. Fiona Shackleton, a woman in the House of Lords who's a lawyer and a family lawyer. And, uh, and she always say, says that when she came into the House of Lords, she said there were a whole lot of very, very wealthy men who suddenly saw her coming in to take her place on the benches. And they all thought, oh, my God. And she's the woman who took the shirt off their backs when their wives sued them for divorce. And so, you know, it's, it, it, you know there, there are some very, very uh, uh, witty, funny people in there. You've just given me a lovely list of people who, who must be on future humorology podcasts. Yeah, get them in, definitely. What book makes you laugh, Helena? I, was, I, I started immediately thinking more of, it was so interesting when you said what book. Um films um i mean for example i have watched over and over again some like it hot and i still weep with laughter at some like it hot um uh there's something about that whole business of of jack lemon and uh 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 you know marilyn monroe i think is just one of the funniest and and, and best of, of humorous films um i worry about the fact that um some of the films that i've loved most have been films about people, about men dressing up as women. And I don't know what that's about, but in this world in which we're, we're wanting to be much more inclusive, and I did the first trans case in an international court back in the 90s, um, I, you know, I, I hope we don't get to a place where we don't think it's possible to laugh at, um, uh, do you remember, um, you know, Tootsie. Tootsie's yeah. one of the most films. Are we going to stop being able to laugh at Tootsie? Um, I, I, I would really regret uh, that. Um, and, and indeed Mrs. Doubtfire and so on. Um, uh, books. I'm trying to think of what book. I mean, on music, on, 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 a, on a record, one of the funniest records that I ever heard was Tom Lehrer. Do you remember Tom Lehrer? Oh, God, yeah, no. I, my friend Jackie Green in the States used to have uh, when I used to go, she used to have an old record player and, and she grew up uh, with the, the Tom Lehrer and she used to play uh, Tom Lehrer all the time to me. And uh, just the use of language oh, um, yeah. was uh, was so precise as well. I love oh, a comedy song. You don't get enough comedy songs. Obviously, with my background with Morris Meyer and the Majors and the Calypso Twins, I would love a comedy song. But I still love, uh, you know, things like Ernie. I thought was was a funny comedy song, but Tom Lehrer was much more intellectually pure. It, 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 I mean, it's just it's worth people going back to it because um, uh, I, I I was introduced to it by somebody and by an American when I was probably twenty, and it still uh, uh, it makes me laugh. Um, but he was he was very very witty. Um, I'm trying to, to think of uh, Howard Jacobson as a writer um, is, is a very, very funny man. And, and let me tell you, he always said, <clears throat> I was for a while the chair of the Booker Foundation, which gave the Booker Prize for, for literature. <clears throat> and I'd been on the board for a very long time. And, um, and I remember Howard won the prize, the Booker Prize. And he at the time said, um, I didn't think I could ever win the Booker Prize because although I thought of myself as a literary writer, um, I, was, I couldn't stop myself being funny. And I didn't think that it, a funny book could win the Booker Prize. Well, I, he did win it with a very funny book. And he, his books are, while serious, uh, are all 
also hilariously funny. And uh, and I and so I, I he's one of the writers that I think I know that I'm going to laugh while I'm reading his 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 very fine um if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What I'm interested in, actually, is isn't it? But I just suddenly thought of the whole thing of the way humour isn't valued so much by society. You know, uh, pe- very few comedians get into the House of Lords, for instance. You know, uh, very few comedy films win Oscars. And it's, you know, things, the humour isn't valued as much. It seemed as easy, you know, but I always think, you know, the drama is easy, comedy is hard. I mean, that whole business of timing, of also knowing knowing your audience, um, you know, the, the skills involved in that, I think, are... are are considerable and you're absolutely right when does a, a comedy film win an oscar um and it's and you almost know when somebody is playing somebody who's been tortured or somebody who's had a you know terrible life or you know that 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 the darker the subject matter the more likely the the actor is to get their you know the, the best actors award um and um and it's in some ways unfair because um uh, the skills involved in in making people laugh are, are un, underrated, not underestimated because I think that we know how important it is, but but somehow in the serious business of the arts, we don't um, give it the, 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 the credit that it deserves. My book, Humorology, which is not a plug, but it's just, a, it, a, the, the byline is the serious business of humor at work. It is serious, to get it right like somebody like Tom Learer that you're talking about Howard Jacobson it's it's a very serious art and to get it right is is much harder I would say than than just to do something serious you should get Howard on because he will talk to you about that whole business of how the world of literature and the book world is um is so sort of steeped in some of these um prejudices that um, to be a great writer, <clears throat> you know, that somehow 
you have to leave that behind. And I, and I, and I just don't, I don't think people are right. He, he's very good on that. I want to take a shift to the other side um, because I I know so much of the amazing work you do is is very serious. So the question I want to ask is, what's not funny? I honestly think you can find humour in in um, in almost any circumstance, but it is interesting um, that some things are. Do you remember there was a film, and it was I think it was an Italian film, and it was about being in in, in the, it was about a man who was in a um, concentration camp um, uh, and his, with his child. Was it My Beautiful Life or something? I, it was, that was, it made me cry buckets. Uh, yeah, the, with the little child, and he pretends everything is a game so the child doesn't get affected by it, yeah. He tries to, to ameliorate the horrors of it all by, by using humour. And I remember having discussions with friends of mine um, about whether whether that was an acceptable thing to do because some people said it was you know that somehow the Holocaust was totally taboo um, and um, and it was interesting because I, I I thought the film was was wonderful oh. the, 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 you know for me it was incredibly moving in fact the more moving because we knew about the horror we knew we knew that it was sitting alongside on that very tight uh, wire um, uh, but but some people really were did feel that that crossed the line. Um, I I don't I don't like supposed humor when it, I mean for example um, there there are times when people think that they're being funny and they're really uh, and and they're really being cruel. Um, and and I, I don't like it where where somebody is seriously diminished. But I'm trying to think of examples of it. I mean, you remember that business where Trump um, uh, thought he was being funny um, when he was talking about somebody who had a disability and who had cerebral palsy or something and, and, and had a shake and, and he started mocking the person. And, and he thought that it was funny and, and no doubt there were people in the audience who thought it was funny, but, but to most of us seeing it then, it, it, it looked so despicable. Um, and so there, there are things that... Um, uh, do cross lines, um, but but I think even difficult subjects can be um, made humorous. But it has to be done with great sensitivity, and uh, and and. Uh, but most most really good comedians, most uh, people who use humor, have very highly developed antennae as to what what crosses the line and what doesn't. Uh, you know, I, anyone that I know who's really, really funny, knows, knows what will work and what doesn't and what's cruel and what isn't. Well, that, but that's interesting, though, but that humour has to walk that tightrope, though, doesn't it? And sometimes you go over the line. Have you ever crossed the line in your own head and then had to pull things back? Last night I spoke at a, a medical, I was asked by a friend to come and speak at a medical dinner. I did a report recently on um, diversity and inclusion, which was um, 
you know, for in for the Royal Colleges, it was this was for the Royal College of Surgeons, and it was to look at the fact that that getting women into those top positions in surgery, it's a bit like the senior levels of the judiciary, and not many women around, and and you have to ask yourself the questions as to why that is, and and you know, and I won't go into the whole serious business of the things that kind of sort of where women feel at early stages exclusion, and therefore make choices that don't take them into those worlds where they know that it's going to be too painful, and so. Uh, um, um, I, uh, I had done this report for, for, for the Royal College of Surgeons, but last night I was, I, was, I was invited to speak at this dinner. And I have to tell you that um, I would have said that the audience was 98% men. And quite a lot of my, my, of my witticisms are around the business of, of guys getting it wrong, you know, or whatever. Or, that, or the business that I have acted for large numbers of women, not large numbers, but, you know, in the scheme of things, I've, I've I've done a lot of cases for women who killed their husbands, but usually after years of being abused and so on, where they eventually snap and they and they can't take any more. But um, uh, and and I mean, for example, I have some jokes that I tell about that. You know, where I was I was doing in the midst of doing this whole set of cases where where women who had experienced violence and uh, and ter terrible treatment inside relationships um, eventually killed their partner and so one was trying to get the law to of diminished responsibility you know provocation or whatever to get it to work for women which was hard because it was never designed with women in mind and so um, uh, I was doing these cases a whole set of them um, when you when you do a case and you get uh, and you start moving the law and things, then solicitors start coming to you because you've got a layer of expertise. So you end up becoming the per the go to person for a certain kind of of, of crime. And so um, I was doing these cases, and, and one of the men in my chambers went into the clerk's room and said, "I've just seen the newspapers that Helena's representing a man that's killed his wife. I didn't know that she represented." Uh, I didn't know that she represented the guys that, that, that did that. And my clerk, who was a very acerbic woman, said, yes, she does, but she doesn't get them off. <laughs> <laughs> Which was not true, no, let no. me tell you. No, but it's, it's a great gag. I mean, because it's a, it's a true story, of course. And, uh, and I felt that, there was, that the response from the audience was not quite as... As, as warm as, as if I say that to a woman's audience, you know, or, you know, but it's, it's interesting. So I kind of had to, I thought, oh, I'm not going down that road anymore. <laughs> I'll, I'll pull back on the, on the husband jokes um, and, uh, and sort of uh, took it elsewhere. But funny is funny, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, I actually thought when I asked the question, the first words uh, out of your mouth were going to be misogyny. Um, but I suppose that uh, if you approach everything, it's a funny, the joke you just told was in inverted commas, anti-man, but <laughs> it's, you can make it funny. And if it's done with the right spirit, of course, then that's where humour comes in, is uh, you've got to know that the person is coming at it with the right heart. Do you not? I make a point of saying to people, you know, there are not very many men that hate women. <clears throat> but but when, when women are talking about misogyny, what they're really talking about is a sense of, of women being kept in their place. And so it's, you know, that's the thing. It's about, or a sense of male entitlement. Um, and, uh, and so it's rather different. It's not, you know, people hating, you know, 
Muslims or black people or whatever, or gay people, or, you know, I mean, it's, 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 I don't, you know, it's not, there are some men that hate women, but it's, it's not many, but there are men who feel that women should know their place and that women are getting too uppity and that women are, you know, and that they, and it's categories of women that they don't like. They don't like, you know, bossy women or women that are kind of, you know, too assertive or all that sort of thing. And so you've got to try and define it differently. And it's, and, and I think that we're still having those sort of discussions in our society about just making sure that we're, we're not finding ways of keeping women in their place. Well, I, I think in the comedy world, I think that, that I think men were intimidated by funny women. I've known uh, lots of very intelligent, very funny women who have found it incredibly difficult to, uh, to, to get male partners because they are either successful or funny or witty and the male ego as this is a generalization obviously can't take it i can't remember who said it but somebody said i think it was margaret atwood said the thing that women fear <clears throat> in relation to men is that they'll kill them that that that, that you know it's, it's the business of greater physical force and all of that the idea that, that and from being a little a child girls are told be careful there are men out there who will do bad things to you <clears throat> so what women, Margaret said, what women fear about men is that they'll kill them. What men fear about women is that they'll laugh at them. Oh, yeah. What word makes you laugh? Well, the idea of tickle makes me laugh. I mean, just the idea of tickle, things tickling you because it's amusing or being tickled or when I tickle my grandchildren. I mean, the whole business of tickling is such an interesting thing. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. And you're laughing just at the word tickle. No, I like that because that... Well, no, no, well, it's it's tickle on a matter pig, do you think? I don't know. It is. But there is a sort of, isn't there a tickling? Yeah, tickling? I, yeah. I don't know. I've never heard it be on a matter pig, which suddenly occurred to me that it probably was. And it was, but it also has a visceral effect, doesn't it? As soon as you say the word tickle, you start to move. But things, of course, metaphorically tickle us because we're amused and stimulated and, 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 you know, energized or innervated by something. It's, it, it is, it's, it's a nice word. Yeah, lovely word. What sound makes you laugh? Hearing my grandchildren laughing makes me, makes me really laugh. Um, and it reminds, there is something wonderful about becoming a grandparent. My grandchildren are, are tiny. And, uh, and they, um, and of course, they're always, they, they find everything to do with weeing and pooing and so on. <laughs> and just hearing them laughing in that completely uninhibited way, and they have no embarrassment about roaring with laughter. I just, I, I, I love it, and it makes me laugh too. <laughs> well, there is that statistic, isn't it, that that children laugh between uh, three and four hundred times a day, but adults only laugh seventeen point five times a day. And I've always wondered about this point five. That it, what is it? <laughs> what's it? Half a laugh? You know, it, you just described something earlier on when you said, you know, you get together with your friends, like you know, Joe Brand and Sandy Toxwood. Is that not part of your therapy? Because I do it. I, I have groups of people who I just know will make me laugh. And it is like therapy. Another person like that is Kathy Lett, you know, the Australian uh, writer. She was married to um, uh, the, the, one of the men in my chambers, uh, Jeff Robertson, who's a very uh, clever lawyer. And, um, and, uh, and Kathy uh, is 
is great fun to be with. And I can honestly tell you, if I ever feel down in the dumps, she's one of those people that you can always rely on to make you feel good. Um, and, uh, and you know, I have great friends like that. And, and, and I have men friends like it as well. I mean, I was talking about one of my colleagues at the Marcus Salon. Um, I mean, you know, who just, you know, that you'll laugh in their company because they're so they're so amusing and funny yeah um, and and find that they, they get to that soft underbelly where you know you know that, that somehow you know even if things are rotten they're not really and we'll get through all of this that sort of thing yeah oh it's beautiful it's beautiful uh so the uh penultimate question is you've got this extraordinary um background and uh, education would you rather be considered clever or funny? Oh, I like the fact that I'm considered funny, honestly. Um, I, 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 I would like, you know, when it's they the write on one's tombstone something, I do want witty or funny to be in there because, because I, do, I do feel it is part of who I am, um, is that I'm, I'm good company, I think, um, because, because I have that capacity of not just being a rather serious lawyer, um, but, um, and it's very interesting. Um, somebody in the House of Lords once said to me, well, we invite you to lots of things, Helena, because you're very clubbable. And of course, clubbable, it sounds rather snooty and posh and grand, but clubbable means that, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not tribal. I'm in the, in the, I'm able to be friends with people across the political divides, and I have lots of friends on, on, on in, in, you know, on all sides of the house. Um, and it's the same as being at the bar. You know, you you fight a case, and you're, the the prosecutor is on the other side, and you can go at each other, hammer and tongs, and afterwards it's it's all over. And I, and I suppose I learned that early on in my profession, and so um, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to be remembered as somebody who was compassionate and warm and humane and funny. Well, you are all of those things. Finally, desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? As lawyers, we're often the butt of jokes. Um, uh, and, and usually it's about us being sort of, you know, avaricious and uh, having no ethics and being, being, <laughs> being appalling people. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, what's the difference between a lawyer and a pit bull? Uh-huh. Jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. A judge once reported me to... Uh, to, to the head of my chambers. He said, could you have a word with uh, Miss Kennedy? She wears too much jewellery in court. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes, fabulous. You are wonderful. Thank you so much for spending the time with us on the Humorology podcast. You're not only clubbable, you are a great company and purely comedic. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Well, it was lovely being with you, really terrific. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros. Produced by David Rose. Music by Steve Hayworth. Creative direction by Les Hughes. And additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.